Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Welcome to this week's edition of the Speech Pathology Australia Speak Up podcast discussing implementing eating and drinking with acknowledged risk guidelines. My name is Kim Teresi and I'm the Association Senior Advisor for Aged Care and we're joining you today from the lands of the Woiwurrung Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I would like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm delighted to be chatting to Ms Helen Leosis, a Senior Speech Pathologist and Subacute Team Leader and the Residential Aged Care Palliative Care Lead at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne. Helen has worked in public health for the past 23 years. Welcome, Helen. Thank you so much for joining us to here today. Thanks very much, Kim, and thanks for that lovely introduction and the opportunity uh, to talk through our work in this area. Fantastic. I'm just going to start us off by way of a bit of background. Um, today we're going to be talking about eating and drinking with acknowledged risk, or EDAR for short, as I'm sure we'll refer to it which describes situations where a person with dysphagia makes an informed decision to continue oral intake that might have been deemed unsafe or having risk by the treating speech pathologist or medical team. And we acknowledge that EDAR can be a complex and at times ethically challenging area, but one which is both within the scope of speech pathologists and commonly encountered in many areas of clinical practice. Uh, in response to member calls for further information and support, Speech Pathology Australia has engaged in developing several resources today, including the SPA 2019 position statement that talked about the role of the speech pathologist in supporting informed decision-making with people with dysphagia, and the 2020 practice guideline in the same area. And both of those can be downloaded from the SPA website as well as, for example, um, other activities such as workshops at the SPA National Conference and other professional development events. And these have provided some initial guidance for practice, which has been very well received by our members. But what about the implementation of such guidelines across different settings and within the respective roles of multidisciplinary teams? What other resources might be helpful for teams to consider in adopting such guidance in their own clinical setting and practice. I know that many of you have been considering this and some teams are well advanced in developing their own frameworks and resources for their context. And today, Helen and I are going to chat further about the work that she's been leading at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne in this area. So Helen, perhaps first of all, could you give us a brief overview of what's been developed from your work today? Okay, thanks, Kim. Um, in brief and in way of an overview, we undertook a project uh, on shared decision-making um, and trying to provide a clear process to help patients make informed decision, decisions about eating and drinking. We collected data to inform our change in practice. We engaged in a range of stakeholders, uh, we benchmarked with other health services and used current literature and resources available to cre create a shared decision-making framework and a toolkit for clinicians. 
Fantastic. It's going to be really interesting to dive into all of that with you. First of all, I'm interested to find out a little bit more about what led you to this, um, to undertaking the project. What were the drivers for you? Well, there were an, a range of drivers and a number of drivers. And I guess I'll start way back in uh, late 2019, where there was a Victorian statewide focus on partnering in healthcare. And Safer Care Victoria at the time had sent out an expression of interest to health services uh, to implement a shared decision framework into clinical practice. So our health service identified that consumer engagement at the point of clinical care was an area for improvement and they nominated shared decision making as a priority area and in particular around a clear process to help patients make informed decisions about eating and drinking. Uh, this, I guess this initiative then was put on hold. Uh, it, it, you know, sort of got off the ground and then got put on hold because of the pandemic. Mm. Um, and then that was reinstated uh, in late 2021 by the speech pathology department, where we formed a, a small project group um, and, and led this work. So as a team or as a department, we'd we knew that we needed a more standardised process um, to reflect um, informed choice and a more person-centred approach to dysphagia management. We noticed that our team members um, were often shying away from EDAR discussions and we knew anecdotally that we weren't consistently following SPA sort of practice guidelines in terms of shared decision-making and EDAR discussions and documentation. So furthermore, um, the SPA conference in Melbourne in 2022, there was, um, Kim, you led an EDAR workshop um, and that demonstrated to me at the time that sort of thirst for knowledge and the appetite for change in this area of practice and also the ambiguity in clinician confidence. And so that, that was um, very much consistent with what we were seeing on the ground, um, even within our team. That's um, lots going on that you've identified that I've heard quite consistently um, across many, many people. So you've obviously identified this need within your own team um, and formed the project group, it sounds like. What happened from there? Can you tell us a little bit more detail about what steps you then undertook to get to the point of your resources that you've developed now? Absolutely. So we established a working party at the time with um, stake stakeholders across the MDT multidisciplinary team. So there were multiple speech pathology representatives on that team across different grades and levels of experience, which we felt was, was important. Um, representatives from medical, um, from nursing, a consumer rep, our quality and risk unit. And we used a continuous improvement eight-step change process framework um, where we looked at defining the objective of what we of what we were undertaking, identifying the current state, developing a future state, and then looking at how we would implement sort of the planning and checking results and standardizing and and, and spreading the work. So from there, we undertook a bit of a local review of the current practice in this area. 
we looked at Safer Care Victoria's uh, sort of decision terminology around shared decision making, and then we looked at SPA's practice guideline um, terminology, EDAR terminology, and we really tried to um, marry that together in terms of the decision terminology we were looking for um, to undertake a file, file audits of speech pathology patients who'd had um, speech pathology intervention and where dysphagia was identified, we looked at 20 discharged uh, patients, subacute patients, and looked through whether we were using the, the decision terminology we'd agreed upon um, in our documentation. And, and some of the examples of that um, terminology with the, were terms such as real or assumed risk, uh, whether a person's wishes or a next of kin's wishes had been documented, of course our speech pathology recommendations, whether an EDAR discussion had occurred and that was documented, whether there was an informed decision, whether there were escalation points and whether there were plans um, put in place and review dates. So they're the, th they're the types of um, uh, the types of things we were looking at in terms of the documentation. Furthermore, we benchmarked across other Victorian metro public and private hospitals, uh, looking at what they developed in this space. And we realised that a lot of work was being done in this space. Um, a lot of the health services identified this is an absolute priority area, but we haven't quite got there, but we really need to get onto this. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, health services uh, such as the Austin and the Epworth were really um, uh, shining in this area. And um, so part of this project was, yeah, benchmarking and then looking at um, how we would create our own framework um, and suite of resources or toolkit for our clinicians. So we went about um, putting those resources together. We then used a quality improvement cycle. So the plan, do, study, act cycle to trial the resources on a, on a small number of patients on our subacute wards. We surveyed the patients around how they um, felt that discussion and the, the resources we used with them to undertake these um, informed decision discussions, if you like, and then we re-evaluated and tri trialled with more patients in different caseloads. So all the way through, we've evaluated consumer and clinician engagement with this process by seeking feedback and then amending our resources, which we've done a number of times. That sounds like a great amount of work, Helen. And um, you mentioned about the development of resources for your clinicians. Um, I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about what those resources were, at, along with what some of the outcomes that you've seen from this project more generally have been. Yes, of course, Kim. So um, we felt we needed to, um, in order to support speech pathologists, speech pathologists in having these shared decision-making discussions, we did need some sort of standardised resources that they could um, take with them. And I guess one of the, the initial documents is an internal speech pathology sort of checklist where the um, clinician has information about what to pre 
prepare for before mm-hmm. they have that discussion? You know, have they looked at um, the modes of communication for that patient? You know, do they need a hearing aid, an ampl- a hearing amplifier, got their reading glasses? Are all the people present for the conversation um, being contacted and um, uh, included? That might be the the person and their next of kin. That might be the medical team in certain instances or an interpreter. Um, Consideration of a person's capacity. So things to do before the discussion. Then considerations for during the discussion um, and then following the discussion, the plan ongoing. So there's a real robust checklist to go through. So the second part of the resources is a shared decision-making in dysphagia handout. So an eating and drinking with acknowledged risk communication accessible handout. So that outlines very clearly for the patient what what that is, why um, a decision is necessary, uh, the reasons for it and the possible outcomes. And there's a contact, contact details for the speech pathologist. And that's a handout we can leave with the patients to, to mull over and have a think about. The other resources are around a decision support guide. And this was adapted through uh, the Ottawa decision guide. And um, this is sort of a a bit of a list of the options and the lists of the benefits and risks. And there's a sure test attached to that. And, um, you know, around is the patient feeling sure of themselves? Do they understand the information, the risks and benefit ratio? And and it's a simple yes, no uh, table. And then there's... um, options for the patients around their choice um, in eating and drinking and the benefits and risks. And there's a pre-field table um, which guides speech pathologists through that discussion. And we've also allowed for a blank table where people can improvise if they feel like they they need to um, add other things. So the, the toolkit is... Um, is robust and um, and we've had some lovely feedback from our clinicians within our team. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I love all of that and I, I'm really um, excited to hear that um, process that you've undertaken as well because it's a great example of taking frameworks, which those practice guidelines are designed to be, um, whether it's the SPA practice guideline and also, you know, obviously seeking input from other things like the Safer Care Victoria guidelines, etc. But taking those frameworks and then working to embed them in your local context and bringing along your teams, bringing your teams along with that, I guess. Um, it, it's a great example of that that process to come out with some things that then are contextualised and supporting your practice on the ground, which is fabulous. Absolutely. So, yeah. 
And the only other thing I'd add there too is um, furthermore, we've uh, put together a bit of a policy, a local uh, dysphagia management um, gui guideline, which is something we can uh, refer to not only as a team, but could refer other multidisciplinary team members to, which sort of outlines the objective and mm. sort of our, our scope and our responsibilities and documentation. Um, Great. That's that's a really good one. We get asked a lot about that, how to manage those discussions and expectations across the multidisciplinary team who haven't necessarily always thought quite as much in this area as perhaps we've started to and are still trying to find their way in terms of understanding mm. the extent of the speech pathologist's role and where the other roles kind of come into play and intersect. So um, that was something we were really conscious of when the working group was developing the SPA practice guideline. Mm. But in developing the SPA practice guideline, we couldn't develop a guideline that spoke to, we couldn't independently develop a guideline that spoke to what we thought the other professions should be doing and what their role we could only stay in our lane and, and talk to what the speech pathologist's role was but um I think you know in the workplace you've got that great opportunity to have those multidisciplinary uh panels like you know working groups like you did set up and you've got more of an opportunity to talk through in a multidisciplinary lens around people's roles yeah so I think that's a really important point I guess I was wondering if you could think um, about what your messages to others might be, um, you know, reflecting on your own learnings, what would you, you know, say to others who might be looking to undertake something similar in their own workplace? That's a great question. I think um, our reflections and learnings have been when we started this project, uh, it began very broadly um, in shared decision-making in dysphagia management. Then we narrowed the concept back down to uh, EDAR discussions. And as we went through the project, um, we decided to again broaden it out again to not only restrict it to EDAR discussions, but to dysphagia management as appropriate, having these shared decision-making discussions and these informed choices. So we undertook this as a continuous improvement project uh, to begin with, um, and we potentially could have taken a little bit more of a robust approach um, on reflection, and this could have easily been a, a research project. Um, in, in hindsight. So that was the other sort of learning for other clinicians out there in terms of sometimes grasping these research uh, opportunities um, when they come up. Um, the other thing is around the recent Speech Pathology Australia Conference in Hobart. We had numerous attendees contact us um, after the conference to ask questions about our presentation um, in this space and the work we'd undertaken. And, and the advice I would give people is, you know, make sure you're familiarising yourself with the Speech Pathology Australia position statement and the practice guidelines. That That is a really um, imperative place to start. You know, try not to reinvent the wheel. So where there are resources that have already been developed, you know, utilise them. Um, and we'd be more than happy to share, as were some other health services. 
and focus probably more on training uh, to change practice and that engage that education and engagement of the multidisciplinary team to come with you on this journey um, because you need to have those team members engaged because you may need them in the conversations you're having so you know they're, they're sort of the focus areas um, and We've had lots of learnings, Kim, so I'll, I'll keep going. But our learnings have also been around how we perceive shared decision-making and, and it shouldn't really be seen as an endpoint of our involvement as speech pathologists in a patient's dysphagia management, but more around um, the start of the conversation, which I believe, you know, should ultimately ultimately be translated in all our clinical decisions. Um, and... Yeah, don't underestimate the value of attending and actively engaging in platforms and PD opportunities such as, you know, the SPA conference and um, real, you know, motivators and, and um, a real opportunity to see what other people are doing in the space. And, and it validates the work, the work that you're doing. I'm sure that you had lots of people come up to you after the presentation you did at the recent conference. It's it's certainly a very um, live topic that people are really interested in, get, in engaging in. Um, in terms of your own work, um, have you got any thoughts about where to from here? Do you have any further plans or are you sort of looking to consolidate the rollout of what you've already done? What's What's next on the agenda? Well, what's next? We're very much in the implementation phase. So mm. this next little bit is quite quite exciting for our team. We're in um, just at the part where we are doing that training and, and education I spoke about um, and very much embedding it into our clinical practice um, within our own team. The next Part to this is engaging back in with our quality and risk unit um, locally within my own um, health service here, just to share the process we undertook and the resources we've developed, potentially to inform other de other departments around shared decision making and clinical decisions. We know, you know, shared decision making is quite a buzzword at the moment, and we know other other departments, you know, are talking about it. But to date, I'm not seeing any resources as such, particularly yeah. my own health service. So it would be really nice to be able to share that and, and contribute um, in a meaningful, meaningful way. Yeah, I can see that as being really, really useful for your multidisciplinary colleagues. I think everyone loves to see that example of operationalising the guidelines in terms of, you know, nitty-gritty day-to-days. Um yeah, fantastic. And and on that topic, I guess, of resources, um, I'll just mention a couple of things that people might be, um, may or may not be aware of, a couple of more recent things as well. Um, we just touched upon before that concept around um, the multidisciplinary team and, and the respective roles. So I'll just mention to people that subsequent to the um, Speech Pathology Australia Practice Guideline, the Royal College, um, RCSLT, partnered with other agencies in the UK to develop a, a multidisciplinary EDAR um, guidance paper. So you might be interested to have a look on um, the Royal College of Speech Language Therapists website for that. And also just um, pretty much hot off the press, 
the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission have released their EDAR resources. So they've mm. developed some fact sheets for both residential aged care providers and consumers around informed choice and decision-making. Um, they've gone with supported decision-making. We'll go down that. It's because the consumers said that's what they wanted to call it. It's not what we told them to call it. But otherwise, we did have an opportunity um, I, I was part of the food and nutrition expert panel that contributed some of the content to those fact sheets. But I think it would be useful if you're working in that space to have a, a look at those because they try to, I guess, outline also from a provider's perspective what the commission is expecting of them in terms of the steps they need to un undertake um, to support people. And, and often if you're working with um facilities who perhaps aren't necessarily attached to a public health um, service, they're a little less sure about their own responsibilities or roles in this space. Um, so, yeah, I just thought I'd mention those couple of um, more recent resources. And then just to note, Helen, that you said that you'd be happy for people to access your resources. So I'm going to circumvent the many questions we're going to have after this podcast, <laughs> which will be, how can we get our hands on on those resources? Um, have you got any comment to make about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had lots of people after the com conference contact mm. me and I'd be very happy um, following this podcast if people would like to email me. Um, so my email is helen, as in H-E-L-E-N dot Leusis, L. E-O-U-S-I-S at svha.org.au. So happy for people to contact me via email and, and start a conversation. You might have um, some other questions uh, about the project and the process we undertook. But, yes, we um, we are very happy to share the resources um with everyone. Yep. So just get in touch. Thank you, Helen. That's very generous of you. And I'm sure will be um, very well appreciated by many people. So I'd really love to thank you again for your time today. Um, being so generous in sharing your learnings and your resources with us all. Um, thanks, everyone for listening. Make sure you tune in next week for our next conversation. And goodbye for now. Thanks, Kim. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.